0: to The Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt, and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources, and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 25 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on Tuesday, the 28th of February, 2017, and it is a crisp day here in Scotland. We've had a wee bit of snow recently, but today is just frosty with a clear blue sky, my absolute favourite. I hope you've all had a wonderful writing month, but as always happens with February, the month has disappeared in the blink of an eye. Today's interview is with YA author Marie-Louise Jensen. Marie-Louise has written historical fiction for the Oxford University Press and serialised books for Fiction Express. I didn't know anything about Fiction Express and the fascinating way they work with schoolchildren to create the finished story. If you're similarly clueless, do listen to the interview for the Inside Scoop. My personal update this month is in danger of sounding a little bit panicked. I've got lots of projects going on at the moment, which I love, but sometimes I can feel a wee bit overwhelmed, and that has happened this week. I know when I'm overwhelmed and good busy has stepped over the line into too busy when my sleep is disrupted, and yesterday I did the classic waking up at 5 in the morning and fretting for a couple of hours. For me, however, it's always worth continuing to try to keep my plate reasonably full, as I do thrive with lots going on, and generally speaking, it stops me from fixating on any one particular thing to the point of paralysis. So, what have I been up to? I have cast the narrator for the audiobook of my novella, The Garden of Magic, and that should be published in April if all goes well. I've had the cover designed, and if you are interested in the cover reveal and the chance to pick up an early review copy of the book, do consider signing up to my readers' group on my author site, sarah-painter.com, or follow the link in the show notes. I have also got my beta reader feedback on the Worried Writer book. A huge thank you to those who have helped me out, and I'm rewriting the manuscript to incorporate their suggestions and corrections. I'm also working with the cover designer this week, which is very exciting, and next will be the proofreader, and then getting my head around the various retailers. It's all a new experience for me, and it's really exciting and interesting, but, true to form, I feel quite anxious too. As it becomes more real, I feel exposed and nervous about it going out into the world, and I really appreciate the kind comments that I've received on the early version It was such a relief to open messages which said that people had found the book helpful and relatable. As always, I'm sharing my feelings of self-doubt with you all, as I want to be very clear that I am very much feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And if I, a woman with pretty much a pile of jelly where my self-confidence is supposed to be, can do it, then you can too. Finally, it's probably time that I reveal the title for the Worried Writer book. It is, drumroll, Stop Worrying, Start Writing. How to Overcome Fear, Self-Doubt and Procrastination. I hope you like it. Next month I will be announcing its publication, I hope, or at least giving a solid date. I'm definitely looking at April. In other news, it really has been all go here, I received some excellent publishing news related to my new novel, Beneath the Water, which was on submission last time I spoke to you. I can't actually talk about it yet, I have to wait until the ink is dry on the deal, but suffice to say I am absolutely thrilled. Okay, before we get to the interview section, I just wanted to recommend a couple of other podcasts. As you know, Stop Worrying, Start Writing is my first fully independently published project, and I really must give a shout-out to the Self-Publishing Formula podcast for its guidance and help. It's created by thriller author Mark Dawson, who, like Joanna Penn, has built an incredibly successful and lucrative career via self-publishing. If it's an area you are at all interested in learning about, you should put it on your must-listen list. Also, via a recommendation by a previous guest of this show, Catherine Ryan Howard, I recently began listening to the bestseller experiment. Two writers are planning to write and publish a novel in a year, and try to make it a bestseller. Even if you aren't interested in that aspect, they have had some cracking guests on the show, including Joanne Harris and Joe Hill. Last week's episode featured Ben Aronovich, who writes the Sunday Times bestselling Rivers of London books, and his interview was really funny and enjoyable, so I definitely recommend that. Next up, I wanted to talk about a writing craft question, which came up in a recent session with one of my mentoring clients. As a side note, you might not be aware that I offer one-to-one mentoring, but more details are available on the Worried Writer site. Link, as ever, in the show notes. So, back to the craft question, it was with regard to handling side characters, those walk-on parts which populate your book, such as waiting staff, drivers and passers-by. Essentially, the question was how much detail to give these characters, how to introduce them, whether to name them or not. My advice is that you should treat walk-on characters as part of the scenery or setting, and follow the same rules that you use for describing those things. So, most importantly, stay with the perspective of your point of view character and only describe what they would notice or comment on. Use description sparingly and make sure you use concrete and interesting details. Here's a quick example of what I mean. Let's say your point of view character is obsessed with money and status. He wouldn't pay any attention to the waiter as he considers him beneath him in social standing. However, if the waiter was wearing a very expensive watch, for example, your point of view character might notice such a thing. He might even wonder where the waiter got the money to buy a status symbol like that. In this example, you would be using a walk-on character to illuminate the thought processes and values of your point of view character. Always think about these kinds of little interactions as opportunities. However, you do want to use as few walk-ons as possible because you run the risk of dragging down the pace of your narrative and overloading your reader with unnecessary detail. Yes, we are surrounded by people in real-life situations, but we are not describing real life. We are creating the illusion of reality, and you would be amazed at how few details you need to give to create this effect. Your reader will fill in so much more with their own imagination. So, by the same token, don't be afraid to simply describe a walk-on character in terms of their role or function. If they don't occur again, and you have no particular pertinent detail that you wish your point-of-view character to notice... Um, there's nothing interesting about them per se you should feel free to refer to them by their function i.e the waiter and then move on if you have a writing or publishing question that you would like answered on the show do get in touch sarah at worriedwriter.com or find me on twitter at sarah r painter Just before we move on to the interview section, I want to say a huge thank you to all of you for listening and supporting the show. If you enjoyed the podcast and have a moment to spare, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating on iTunes or maybe like the new Worried Writer Facebook page. And as always, a quick shout out to some lovely folk on Twitter. Megan Nichols, who's at Meg J Nichols, said that she had just listened to the November 2015 interview with Katherine Ryan Howard, and that it put her in the best mood. I love that people are discovering the backlist episodes, and I really hope the archive can act as a valuable resource for people. If you haven't heard all the interviews, do head to worriedwriter.com to find them all. Melanie Moxon, who's at MelMox7. Bibliomaniac UK, who's at Catherine Sund3, and Helen Redfern, who's at A Bookish Baker. I do recommend you follow Helen, especially if you are interested in advice on using social media to build your platform or brand as an author. She recently released a free guide on the subject, and the details are linked from her Twitter profile. And finally, Lauren L. Garcia, who's at LA Loga Rights or La Loga Rights. Lauren said, working on conquering self-doubt demons with this amazing podcast. Thank you, Lauren, and good luck with your writing. And now, on to the interview section of the show. Marie-Louise Jensen writes books for children and young adults. Her books include Between Two Seas and The Lady in the Tower, both of which are published by the Oxford University Press and were shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. Marie-Louise has also written for Fiction Express, which publishes books in an interactive, serialised format, and her latest book is a YA title, Six Formers, Year 12. Welcome to the show, Marie-Louise, and thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Well, I covered a wee bit in your introduction, but just to break the ice with the audience, could you tell us about your latest release?
1: I had two or three books out last year. I had um, an interactive ebook um called The Hidden Curse, but that's locked to schools. And um, I had an ex- ebook published in print form called Finding Hope, which was also Fiction Express. And um I also self-published, took the decision to self-publish a teen book sit form as which you mentioned, um, which I decided to do because the teen market in the UK is very difficult at the moment and there's it's very hard for them to take much on. A lot's coming from the States. And I just thought, well I wanted to share the story. So I put it onto Amazon Kindle. It was fun. It was a fun experience. It was a learning experience to do. Amazon had made it incredibly easy to self-publish. And um, obviously the book had been through endless edits and it had been nearly taken on by an agent and oh, so frustrating. But I think the, um, the, the, the story was inspired by my own two boys going through sit form and how different it was from my own experience. There are similarities and then there were huge differences from the modern day. And they came home with so many funny stories. I felt inspired to write the book and um really had fun doing it
0: (laughs) (laughs) and did you enjoy the process of putting it out yourself no
1: i would no it was quite stressful i mean i would always prefer to have it traditionally published and have other people take care of it and be sure there were edits being done and a nice cover being designed but but as i said it has been quite a amazon have made it quite easy to do so it wasn't too bad (laughs) Mm. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. and um, if i can just go back to the fiction express that's not something i'm familiar with um could you tell us a bit more about how that works for the reader and for the author sure fiction express have
1: are a small company based in shropshire actually they've just been sold to a spanish publisher which is a shame but they're still going um and they were they are basically they they get schools to subscribe So, there are 10,000 school kids reading at any one time across the English speaking world. And they write, you write, the books are split into five chapters. So, you write a chapter in advance. And at the end of the first chapter, there are two or three voting options. And the children choose how they want the story to continue within the parameters of the options you've given them. So, you end on a cliffhanger, you offer them possibilities of what will happen next, and they pick it. And they get incredibly passionate about what they want to happen and they wanting their choice to be selected obviously you go with the highest vote sometimes it's a really big vote for one thing sometimes it's much much more evenly split and um all the time there's a there's a blog on the website as well so you chat to the kids i think i had something i had over a 100 interactions last time i was writing a book which is just last month it's great fun and you do this so I think I get the vote result. They read the story on Friday. They vote by Tuesday. I get the voting option, the voting result straight away. I've already submitted three possible outlines to the publisher by then over the weekend. And then I have to write the chapter by Thursday morning and it gets edited by Friday morning and, uh, and it comes backwards and forwards several times and then it goes live again on Friday. So it's a very hectic month. <laughs> And each chapter was voting. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's very supportive. The editors are very supportive. So you never feel, well, you get the odd panic, but you never feel um, you're not going to do it. Or, And I think it's a good way of overcoming writer's block because you have to do it. <laughs> you can't afford to pussyfoot around and say, oh,
0: my creative news has deserted me. <laughs> it must be lovely as well having that as well as being frightening i do like the sound of the interaction with the readers
1: it's very good fun they're so sweet the kids
0: lovely and as a as the writer um you were just saying about how it's motivating um are there any other (laughs) any other benefits to writing in that episodic format
1: you get a book written very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like signing up for nano NaNoWriMo, you know, you do get a book done. Um, so that's quite, that's very uh, satisfying. You sort of start out the adventure thinking, oh, I've got such a busy month ahead. And then by the end, of the, but at the end of the month, I'll have a whole book written. And that, that is really, really fun. It sort of condenses the whole process. And as I said, I've also really enjoyed the editing because you get mm. usually when you send in edits, certainly to a UP, it could be a month or two months before you got them back. Whereas with Fiction Express, they're back within a few hours.
0: So it's That's still enough. fresh in your mind, isn't it? Then? Yes. 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 Yeah. And I guess it must also be interesting um, to sort of see which way the kids want, the readers want it to go. You know, what it's- what grabs them and and what makes a good cliffhanger or... That must be a really interesting learning experience.
1: It is, and it's not always what you expect. The first book I wrote for Fiction Express was called Drama Club. That's print published now for the 9 to 12 age range. And uh, we gave them a choice of who would get the lead role in the play. And the choice was um, the the main character of the story, her best friend, or the the group Nasty Girl. Mm -hmm. And of course, they picked her. Which I didn't think anyone had expected. Well, I thought they might, because it obviously made for a better story.
0: Ah, so, <laughs> well, that's interesting. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, let's go back to the beginning, if we, if we can. Um, did you always want to be a writer?
1: I did. Um, I did always want to be a writer, um, inspired very much by the C.S. Lewis stories growing up. But I also fe- felt the need to go out and experience life and gather... Okay gather both experiences and uh, ideas, thoughts, knowledge, and a huge amount of reading. I wanted to accumulate a lot more reading. So I didn't do it early on. Obviously, there weren't the creative writing courses around when I was younger. Although, when I arrived to start my university course at the University of East Anglia, I was right next door to a very famous creative writing course. And I remember thinking, "Oh, I didn't know that existed. I'd have applied. But I think it was better I didn't at the age of 18, 19, because... For example, my third and fourth books were very much inspired by a module I did doing Scandinavian studies. And I've written all sorts of things that have been inspired by things I did much later in my life that I wouldn't have known about. Uh at So I think I did the right thing waiting. But at 40, I decided I wasn't going to wait anymore.
0: (laughs) And what what was it like to get started for you when you when you did decide you weren't going to wait? How did that go? It was
1: quite funny, actually, because it was absolutely terrible. I'd written a lot of I'd written a lot of short stories and poetry over the years, never really shown it to anyone. Uh, it was all quite awful. And then I wrote, I tried to write a children's book, and it was so bad. And I, I knew it was bad. I could see it was bad myself. But I didn't know how to make it better. And I was so frustrated. So, yeah, it was a really bad start. And I went to, applied to do the children's MA at Bath Spa, because I knew I needed to do something with this book, get some help. I really wanted to write it and I submitted the first I think it was the first 20 pages and they said yeah this is pretty awful I was like yeah I know <laughs> and I just had to make it better and they gave me lots of really good advice oh brilliant and, um, even in the interview I think even just from the interview I'd have learned a lot um, luckily I did eventually get taken on um, and that did become the lady in the tower in the end that book Ah. Um, but it was utterly different to how I started. It. <laughs> I didn't write it first I wrote a different one first on their advice and then I threw away everything except for the prologue and um I've done a lot of throwing away of these but it was it was an in- but when I started the m a and we did experimentation and I struggled with some of it and then I, I started writing a historical fiction book and it was like everything came together and it just flowed. It was amazing and that's that is the genre I probably love the best and
0: write. and do you have a background in history i don't
1: i always loved history i did GCSE. i it was a very close toss-up both at a level and university between literature and history but i went to literature both times with my languages i speak four languages but i i chose literature and i think it was not so much the history as the fact that i read masses of old books
0: I was just going to say I was the same I loved history but I chose English literature because books um yes. but I actually learned a lot of history yes. studying English literature because you study the context and you know you I do. picked up a fair amount I'm not I'm not saying it's, it equates to a history degree but it's it's not a, it's <laughs> not a world away is it
1: no it's not and and i think you when you've read endless gothic novels and dickens and all those things and the brontes and you you kind of get a a feel for what it was like to be alive in that time which is perhaps more useful than the facts in many ways and you get a sense of like morning visits and you wouldn't know about any of that from history a
0: history degree that's
1: very and as you did social history that's very much from reading
0: absolutely (coughs) yes i agree um and Speaking of the history, the historical aspect to your books, I'm assuming you enjoy the research.
1: I do enjoy the research; it's great fun. Sometimes it can be frustrating, but it is it is great fun. And my goodness, do we need libraries for that? <sighs> Absolutely. <clears throat> I couldn't have written the, um, the the girl in the mask without bath local archive and it's horrifying to know they're about to shut our library down here oh gosh into a little one-stop shop place and i'm thinking how i had a, a qualified librarian who helped me find all the right sources and i don't know what will happen in the future because you can't get it on the internet it isn't there
0: no i agree it's terrible I had another question about researching. Um, I enjoy researching as well, but sometimes... Well, what's your process, I guess, is what I, what I wanted to ask. Do you do all your research first and then mm. write the book? Or do you dive in, write the book, and then um, research what you need afterwards?
1: Normally, the first option, I normally do my research first. Of course, you can never research everything because you don't quite know where the story's going and what will come up. Mm. Um, but I did... I do tend to do my research first. I tend to go and buy a big, borrow a big stack of books from the library, order a load of secondhand ones online and read and read and read and read and get myself into steeped in that era and um, and make notes. I may, I usually have an A4 ring binder of notes that I do. And then you're ready. At some point, you suddenly realize you're ready to go. And I never start a book until I can see the first scene in my head. And then I, and then Yes, I just do bits of research as I go along after that.
0: Mm-hmm. And on the subject of process, um, do you plan the story or do you um, go ahead and work it out as you go along?
1: I plan the story. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the same ring binder. Um, <laughs> in a tip I learned from Steve Voke actually, who's also a children's writer. Um, a double side of an A4 ring binder with chapters 1 to 15 and fif- and 16 to 30 down, and a few notes on each chapter. And I often don't have much in the middle, but I'll have a lot at the beginning and the end. So although I don't know how I'm going to get there, I know where I'm going.
0: Oh, that's, that's a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just to go back again, sorry, I meant to ask you about your journey into publication.
1: Well, that was very much because of the Masters that I did at Bath Spa, um, and it was quite funny really because I was by no means the star of the course um, They, were, I was the one they nearly didn't take and there were several writers who were much more uh, able to write contemporary at that stage, I'm better at contemporary now because I've had kids grow up through their teen years but at that time I couldn't do it and um, I felt very, very inadequate and then as I said it was when I wrote my historical fiction at the end of the first semester that it started to come together and I met Rosemary Cantor at, she was then at Peter Fraser's Dunlop Agency um, on the course she came to speak to us and I thought I want her to represent me so when I was finished before the course was done I sent her the opening chapters of my manuscript and she took me on so I was very very lucky gosh it was yeah. very easy and she also got me a p- publishing deal with AUP EP in the first round of submissions so it was it was kind of a dream walk into the world. I did have a long wait. I had a two-year wait with OUP for publication. <laughs> um, but but it wasn't difficult. But then I've had hiccups since, like everyone does. So
0: <laughs> that's it. That's it. But that, that is an absolute dream beginning, isn't it? That's fantastic. It so you said it was a two-year wait from, you know, getting the pub, um, sorry, getting the contract with, with OUP and then you had to wait for the slot on the publishing schedule i assume or
1: um it was because of the waterstones prize they didn't tell me that at the time ah, because right. they didn't want to build up any hopes that wouldn't be fulfilled but they said they said 23 months or 22 months i think it was and they said we can publish it quicker if you insist but it will work trust us it will work better if you wait and so i said i'll go with what you know because i what do i know about children's publishing and it was had to be a january publication because of the waterstones they only take books that are published in January on that prize list. And I did get longlisted and I did get shortlisted and it did do very well on the shortlist. It's a fantastic marketing tool because it goes on three for two. It's on a big list in the shop and um, certainly it was in those days. And I was right to take their advice. So
0: <laughs> That's good. And what year was that? What year was your debut
1: out? I know, 2008. So I sold the book in January, in March two thousand and six. Uh-huh.
0: So a lot, it was a long wait. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, I bet that that I bet that felt like a long wait. <laughs> it did, it did. <laughs> and has your experience with, um, I mean, OUP, very prestigious publisher, has it been a good experience with them? Because you've oh, had a few, quite a few books out with them now, haven't you?
1: I had seven books out, which is uh-huh. a really good run, yes. And they were lovely, particularly my editor, Liz Cross, was lovely. They are not publishing teen books anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, which is sad for me. And um, when they asked me to write something younger, I didn't really know where to start. Um, now that I've written for Fiction Express for a while, I might have another go. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of trying something out this next year now, but I'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's it's just a long it's a long old haul isn't it with ups and downs and turns and, and turns. twists and turns <laughs> <laughs> yes. and in terms of children's books what was the sort of marketing stuff that you had to do did you have to immediately go in and do school visits and that kind of thing or w- was there pressure put on you for that or
1: absolutely not no the did that's one of I suppose one of the advantages of not being their top titles is that you don't get taken out and about very much they they um oh, it was always Tim Bowler and um, you know the others that were taken out and the ones that had won the Carnegie (laughs) (laughs) they did they supported me if I booked, if I got a school event. Occasionally, they got me one for World Book Day once. Somebody rang up and wanted Jaldine McCochran or somebody, and she was already booked, so only oh, no, Gillian Cross. So they passed her to me, they passed the school to me, and that was a brilliant event. But you see, it was, the, the schools normally approach me directly. I've done a lot of school visits over the years. Um, I really enjoy them. I would do more if I could. I had particularly a lot last year. I would like to have done more. Because I think meeting kids and interacting with them is incredibly helpful for the for the writer. And it's just fun. I've got full costumes I wear. I've got full Viking outfits and full Georgian outfits and highwayman gear that I go in <laughs> with. And, um, and costumes for them, too. And we have, we have a real riot. So it's fun. But it is exhausting traveling across the country. I mean, when you've got to get up at four in the morning to get to Doncaster <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> from the southwest. But, uh, no, there was very little I needed to do.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm asking because this is the worried writer. I'm afraid I do yes. like to delve in to try and find the Absolutely. bits, <laughs> and Absolutely. and I know personally one aspect of children's and uh, publishing, the idea of doing school visits, is fairly terrifying. So I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, were there any aspects that you did find hard?
1: Yes, there are a few aspects apart from the travelling, which is exhausting, and that is the and the fact that you come down off off the adrenaline afterwards, which can be really horrible experience. But the, um, occasionally you get a hostile audience. Mm-hmm. That can be very, very unpleasant. Um, and they're just sitting there going, why would we even be interested? I can remember once a group sat in absolute silence. And then the teacher said, if anyone wants to buy any books, and the whole front row were going, why would we want to buy a book? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah that was quite harsh but mostly it's not like that i mean that that's really unpleasant because you you begin to feel the hostility and the disinterest and you kind of speed up and then you run out of material and then they don't ask any questions (laughs) in those situations i just read to them (laughs) but um, that's that would, I would say that was the only downside. Usually you've got lovely librarians, interested kids, and it's a brilliant experience. Obviously, as a teacher and lecturer, it was easier for me to go into do school events than maybe it would be for some people.
0: Uh-huh. So you you are a teacher then. What is it that you teach?
1: Um, I teach my four languages.
0: Oh, wow, yes. <laughs> so I do a lot of private tuition. Uh-huh.
1: Um, and I also lecture in creative writing. And I have four lectured in English. So I've I've done quite a bit.
0: So you're just talking about juggling uh, writing events with writing, uh, with life. What's a sort of typical writing day or a typical working day for you? Or is there such a thing? Typical
1: writing day? No, there isn't. Because all the first years I was writing, I was home educating my two boys. Uh And so my life was very chaotic and based around them. So I only wrote when I had time. So a lot of my writing was done in the car while they were in gym or in, um, you know, whatever drama or whatever they were doing, sport. Or it would be um, after they'd gone to bed late at night, I would sometimes write through a lot of the night. Or it would be when they were visiting their dad or my mother or something like that. So I would I would write whenever I had time. And it's stayed like that, really, even though they're both at university now, (laughs) right when I have time. And for me, because it was always so difficult to get writing time, it feels like a massive treat to have writing time. So I very rarely have problems motivating myself.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's good. (laughs) And do you have an ideal writing time, such as first thing in the morning, or is it just literally whenever you can fit it in? It's
1: pretty much whenever. I used to struggle to be creative first thing in the morning, but I don't have a problem with that anymore. And when the children became teenagers and started staying up late and outstaying me, Mm -hmm. I couldn't write, I couldn't get them to bed and still be awake enough to write. I started getting up early to write instead. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: And that worked too. So I can write pretty much any time I've got the time.
0: Well, that's good. And do you um, aim for a particular word count or do you use any sort of productivity um, processes? I don't, but
1: it would probably be a good idea. Certainly when I sign up for NaNoWriMo in November, I do really like having the little, you know, target every day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, no, I don't, and I probably should. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And um, to go back to, to worried writer worries, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> do you have any struggles, you were just saying you don't have a particular problem motivating yourself, but is there a part of the process that you do find difficult, the part of the creative process?
1: You always get patches where you're not as sure where you're going to, and you, or you don't feel it's working as well as you had envisaged it in your head. And those can be difficult to get through. I think it can be hard to make yourself write through those sometimes sometimes edits can be hard as well mm-hmm. if there are things that are quite structural that you need to address it can be hard to sort of make yourself tackle them because yeah it's hard you don't quite know how to do it if you'd have if you'd have known a better way to do it you probably would have done it <laughs> and you have to then force yourself to think of one and that can be quite challenging you uh-huh. sort of get that oh just i'll do it tomorrow
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if um if you do find that you've stopped and you're putting it off till tomorrow, um, do you have any strategies for dealing with that?
1: If I'm certainly, if, I'm, if I've written myself into a corner or I'm a little bit stuck with where to go next, um, I will go for a walk or a swim. Those two things are very, very good for the creative process. And it's quite surprising how you'll go out and I sometimes say to myself, I'm kidding myself, this isn't going to help. And you come back and you don't, It's like, oh, yeah, of course I know how to do that. And you think, (laughs) where did that even come from? (laughs) I had a really big patch where I was stuck with my chapter for Fiction Express because I'd got to where we thought we were going to do the vote and I was way short of the word count. And so I needed to carry on but still do a good vote at the end. So I sat down with my youngest son. He's been occasionally very helpful at talking things through and helping me work my ideas out. So that's really useful too.
0: Excellent, that's a good tip. And has anything changed for you over time in terms of dealing with um, self doubt? If you experience that, has has experience helped? It's helped me feel sure I can tackle the
1: issues in the story. Mm-hmm. And you do get that writing experience does does make you more confident about the process of writing but equally I've lost confidence having had such an easy ride into publishing I was then careless enough to lose my editor and my, my publisher and my agent in the same year and I do feel feel that loss of confidence when I come to sit down to write I sometimes think oh I'm no good which is silly I've got a whole pile of books on the bookshelf to prove that I am. But it, it, yeah, the typical writer thing that you you doubt yourself as soon as things go wrong.
0: How have you sort of dealt with it? So you look at obviously you look at the books on the shelf <laughs> and remind yourself. <laughs> um, are there any other ways in which you deal with self doubt? I'm still getting emails
1: from a lot of the kids who've been writing to me since they were about 12. Oh, um, lovely. Which is lovely. I've got about five of them who are all university now who still write to me. And they give me a great sense of, no, I do need to carry on with this because they still, they're still they still rereading my books, bless their hearts. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> it is, it's lovely. And I don't know, I, I think the best way to deal with it is just to get lost in your story. Mm-hmm. Because then mm-hmm. doubts about whether it's worth publishing is, disappear when you're involved in it or Mm. they do for me or temporarily it's a temporary fix (laughs) (laughs) i did really really love the chance to do some different kinds of writing when i didn't have a set book i had to write for a date you know when you've got deadlines you you can really only write that book um whereas having no deadlines the first year was a joy because i wrote two books very quickly that were contemporary and that absolutely loved doing something different Mm mm-hmm now I've sort of reverted. I'm doing it, working on a new historical one now. And that's also lovely because I'm back to doing what I know and love. So, uh, yeah, just try and enjoy the process.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. But that's, that's also good advice to sort of try writing something different. Yes. You know, even if you decide it's not for you, it'll have been a change. You probably have learned something as you progress in your writing career. I mean, before we started recording, we were saying about how it tends to be a bit twisty turny. Um, <laughs> but as you progress in your, for everybody, but as you uh, move along, are there any other aspects of the writing life which are stressful or likely to cause you worry?
1: Obviously, one always worries about money because it's not a wealthy job for most of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm supporting myself, so I do stress about whether I should go out and take a full-time job uh-huh. instead of doing all the little bits and pieces I'm doing to keep myself going so that I have enough time to write. Uh, and that's probably the the main worry, really.
0: Mm-hmm. And how about self-promotion and kind of the marketing aspects of publishing?
1: I'm absolutely rubbish at those. <laughs> <laughs> I can't sell anything, let alone myself. Myself is probably bottom of the list of what I can sell. Um, so, like when I put six formers on um, Amazon, I sort of just put out a tweet in and in a, in a Facebook thing saying, um, I've, "I've done this thing on Amazon, and don't, don't worry about it." And that was really literally all I was capable of doing, <laughs> which is, you know, no good at all. Because I think the authors that are successful. As self-published authors, certainly, are very good at promoting themselves.
0: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I
1: won't have a career in that particular direction. I don't think.
0: <laughs> I don't think you're alone in feeling that way. I think most writers feel that way about promotion.
1: I think they do. I think they do. It takes an incredible amount of confidence in yourself in your work to, to to sort of go out and pester people to buy it or to sell it to them. Mm. I could never have gone into sales for anything. I, even if I really believe in a product, I have a job with that process of persuading people that they should buy it because I think they should.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, finally, I'd like to ask you about your future plans, if there are any that you're sort of willing to share or your next release or, or the book that you're working on at the moment.
1: I have um, just written, just finished an ebook for Fiction Express called Omar's Farm, which was had the major amount a major amount of interaction with the kids they really got on board with it and I I, so I hope that will be out as a paperback but that won't be until the year after uh, won't be this year it'll be next year if it comes um I would love to write year 13 for sixth formers because I so enjoyed the experience of writing humor um I'm very sad I'm one of those people that laughs at their own jokes so I sat like crying with laughter (laughs) rereading the book and my son my eldest son also helped me because it was very interesting with humor I discovered and I'm sure this is something that normal you know people who write humor all the time know already but you don't just come up with something funny you write the story and then you layer in the humor afterwards Uh and I find it takes several goes through to layer those jokes in and then my son would come in and go that would be even funnier if you did that and then I said oh and what about that and it would really build up and it was a lovely, lovely way to work. And I think we're going to need humour in the next years. So I would do some more of that. Um, I'm also writing, as I said, a historical, which I don't know yet whether it will be Upper End YA or Adult, but it's called The Dressmaker's Revenge. I like the title. Yes, the title's fun. I'm not usually very good at titles, but I, did, I was very pleased with that one. <laughs> so that that's fun. I've written about two thirds of that, maybe more. And I've also, I'm having a thought I'd like to have a go at something with mermaids. That's probably very random. Fantastic. (laughs) That would be nine to 12, I think.
0: Uh Oh, that's very exciting. Lots of, lots of good plans.
1: Yes. Well, we all need good plans, don't we?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And um, where should people go to find out more about you and your books?
1: Well, as we said before the interview, my, website's not terribly up to date at the moment I need to sort that out but they're all on my author page on Amazon
0: okay Um, I should put a link to that then in the show notes and and do you hang around on social media at all or I do not do do any such time wasting (laughs) no I do I'm on social
1: media I'm on Twitter at Jensen ML Jensen underscore ML and I'm on Facebook and I do enjoy I use Twitter mainly I've always used Twitter mainly for politics but I do have a writer world there as well and um, Facebook is very (laughs) writery
0: that's brilliant well thank you so much for your time it's lovely to speak to you lovely to speak to you too thank you thanks for listening today for show notes and links head to worriedwriter.com if you'd like to connect find me on twitter at sarah r painter or use the hashtag worriedwriter. see you next time